0: We'll start off in Psalm chapter number 23 this morning. So thankful for those who work with our children here. So thankful for the work that they do. It is such a blessing to know as we're sending them out, they're going to be going out and hearing the Word of God just like we are. Amen. That is such a joy. Psalm chapter number 23 is where we'll start off this morning. And you've heard me pray a couple times already this morning that this is not going to be an easy sermon to preach given the nature of this particular sermon that God's called me to preach. But there is no question in my heart and no question in my mind that this is what God has for us today. You'll remember uh, back a couple weeks ago we concluded a three-part sermon series entitled The Right Place at the Right Time. What we are trying to highlight is the need for God's people to abide in Christ, especially at this late hour as we await the return of our Savior. What's needed more than anything else among God's people is for God's people to maintain a personal, vibrant, thriving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Anything short of that in this moment, I believe, will result In us being caught up in this great falling away that we see happening all over our world. We share with you that there is great power that comes from abiding in Christ. The power that you and I desperately need. The power that you and I oftentimes find missing in our lives. Power over sin, power over darkness, power to speak the truth, power to preach the gospel. These are all things that come directly from abiding in Christ. God does not intend for you to be the source of power. He intends to be the source of power in your life. God designed it this way. Very intentionally, because God wanted all glory, all honor, and all praise to be lifted up to Him. He doesn't want us to look around at each other as superheroes. No, that's not His intention. His intention is for us to honor and praise His holy name. And so the power must come from Him, and therefore you and I must abide in Him to receive that power. We also spent some time looking at the passageway to our position in Christ. How is it that you and I even have the opportunity to abide in Christ? And we concluded that it is by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel, uh, that we preach that you and I have any opportunity at all to be brought into the presence of God. We know that whenever Jesus breathed his last words out, he said, is finished on the cross of Calvary. And the moment that he spoke those words, you'll remember that the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom, signifying to the whole world that the access into the presence of God has now been made possible to all of us who place our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He alone is the passageway into His presence. Finally, two weeks ago, we looked at the peace of our position in Christ. We pick up there in Psalm chapter 23. Look at it with me this morning. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. Now, as we read down through this passage, we shared with you that in Christ, we find all that we ever need. That, ver- that first verse, Psalm chapter 23, in verse number 1, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We literally could say, the Lord is my shepherd and I need nothing else. That's the idea of the verse. The idea is I have, I have nothing else I need, nothing else I long for, nothing else I want, because the Lord Jesus is my shepherd, and I can testify to that this morning. If you have Jesus as your shepherd, you don't need anything else. You don't, frankly, want anything else when Jesus is your shepherd. When you have this kind of a walk with Him, you don't need anything else. We find that in Christ is our provision, our peace, our power, our purity, our protection, our preparation, and our pleasure in this passage of Scripture. But as I was reading through, and I know many of you are reading through with me, we're trying to read through our Bibles together this year from cover to cover in one year's time. And if you all were caught up on your Bible reading this week, you would have come across a very interesting few chapters regarding the man who authored this Psalm, Psalm chapter 23. Now we understand that King David, he authored this psalm under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it was God breathing into him these words to pen. We understand that based on what God's word says. But it's interesting to me to consider that, that David here was not yet king. He was going through some very trying times. Some of you might remember that King Saul was actually pursuing hard after David with the intentions of, of slaying him. Saul was jealous of David. Saul knew that God's hand was upon David's life and he could see that David was going to go on to accomplish great things far greater than he ever would accomplish. And that rage and that jealousy overtook Saul and ultimately it led him to pursue after David, ultimately to kill him so that he didn't have to worry about David anymore. And sometime in the midst of this chaos or what would seem like chaos, David writes this song. Now that seems nearly impossible to even consider given what this psalm says. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. How could someone in the midst of that kind of situation ever say those words? I'll tell you how they could as long as the Lord is their shepherd. That's how he was able to say those words. But I want you to understand that David was not a perfect man. David had problems. David had some really big problems. And this morning I'd like to highlight some of those issues that David had in a sermon called the wrong place at the wrong time. If you would, turn with me to Psalm chapter number 51 this morning. Remember what we've just read here in Psalm 23. I I read that intentionally to begin with because I want to show you the contrast between Psalm chapter 23 and Psalm chapter 51. As we read Psalm chapter 51, we'll find the same author, but a totally different place spiritually than he was back in Psalm 23. In Psalm 23, he says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. I mean, we're talking about a guy who is close to God. But now look with me at Psalm chapter number 51. And we'll read down through the first 12 verses or so here together. It says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindnesses, According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly. From my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, the only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. with thy free spirit. Heavenly Father, would you help us now as we open up your word together? God, would you empower me, give me just the right words to say, and just the right spirit in which to say them. And Father, I pray that today you would do a deep and abiding work in the hearts and lives of everyone present. Lord, I know that if we were all honest this morning, we would all have to admit That we have things that we don't want anybody else to know about. Sins that have been so easily besetting us. And today I pray that you would deliver and liberate the hearts of your people from those sins. Use your holy word by way of your Holy Spirit to accomplish this deep work this morning. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I think one of the reasons why messages like these are so hard to preach is because of the sensitive nature of a message like this. I understand uh, a lot of times whenever folks come to church, they want to be able to come and just sing some good hymns and enjoy some good fellowship and hear uh, a, a kind message and then go on their way. And this morning, my intentions are very different from that. As God has laid this sermon on my heart, my intentions are that those that have come into this room would be willing and have the courage to allow the holy spirit of god to search deeply into the very heart and mind to find what it is that that you've been hiding what it is that you just hoped would never be brought to light things that that you don't even that you don't even voice to your spouse the things that that you don't even intend for anyone to ever know about. I mean, no one should ever find out. Well, if I could just go ahead and put your heart at ease about something, somebody already knows. You see, God already knows. And you may have thought you were hiding it. You may have thought nobody knew about it. You may have thought you've been able to get away with it. But the reality is, God knows. He's already fully aware of it. And He has laid out for us in His Word principles and truths by which He can draw us back from it. Give us victory over it. And best of all, best of all, Forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so today my hope is not only to point out those secret things, but my hope is to present to you the Word of God in such a way that you understand that you don't have to abide in that. Yes, you ought to confront it. Yes, you ought to confess it. Yes, you ought to feel the weight of it and be convicted over it. But today, I believe by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be gloriously cleansed from that thing you thought you would never get rid of. (laughs) I'm so thankful for the power of Jesus to cleanse even the most grotesque and dark of sins. I believe that the power of the blood of Jesus is mighty enough this morning to cleanse us from every ounce of unrighteousness we have ever committed, are committing, or ever will commit. But we have to follow His direction. And so as we look at God's Word this morning, I want to ask this question to start off. What exactly took place in David's life that led him, from the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want... To, I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. What happened? Is there a historical account that we can turn to, to figure out what took this man from being so close to God to being so far away? And the answer is yes. Turn with me in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter number 11. 2 Samuel chapter number 11, preaching a message entitled, The Wrong Place at the Wrong Time. There's a reason why I'm preaching in the tone that I am this morning. You'll find out when we get to Second Samuel chapter number 12. You'll find out why this tone is being taken. I have learned that whenever someone is caught up in besetting sin, when someone is, is held down captive under the weight of darkness that has held them for a long time, you don't just sugarcoat them out of that. You, you understand? I guess what I'm trying to say, if I could put it into an illustration. If my children are not getting the nutrients that they need to grow to be strong men, I'm not going to go give them a popsicle. I'm not going to go give them a lollipop or a sucker. I'm going to make them eat meat. I'm going to make them eat their vegetables. And they may not like the taste of it as much, but it is essential for them to grow out of where they're at into where they need to be. And so this morning, it might be a little bit more meat and vegetables, meat and taters this morning, than it is cotton, candy, and lollipops. But my hope and prayer is that the Holy Spirit of God will use it mightily to shake you out of that dark place. (laughs) 2 Samuel chapter number 11, and look at verse number 1 with me. We're asking the question, what took place in David's life that made such a transition? And to put it simply, David was at the wrong place at the wrong time, and the results were devastating. Look at 2 Samuel chapter number 11, verse number 1. The Bible says, and it came to pass, after the year was expired, what year? One of the greatest years in David's life. I mean, David has tasted sweet victory after sweet victory after sweet victory. David has been spared by God's own hand. David has been anointed king over Israel. What an extraordinary year. Now listen to this. And it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon, and besieged Reba. Now listen to this. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed, and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And she came in unto him, and he lay with her. And she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. Wow man after God's own heart that's God's own testament to who David was a man who had been anointed to be king coming off the most victorious year of his entire life and before you even know it before even 24 hours clicks off the clock he goes from treating dealing out the kindness of the Lord to his enemies in 2nd Samuel chapter number 10 committing adultery in 2 Samuel chapter number 11. I'd like to start off by looking at what I'm calling falling from God's plan, falling from God's plan, and I want you to understand that in order to fall from God's plan, it always requires the same thing, and that's sin. Sin is always what the devil will use in order to bring us from where God wants us to be to where he wants us to be. And I want you to understand that, that the devil, he never comes along and just just starts right off great big with this awful, horrendous, t- terrible sin. No, it's far more subtle than that, you understand. It doesn't just all happen at, at once. There's little sin that leads up to what we consider bigger sin. Of course, we understand in God's perspective, it's all sin. But there is a, a luring away from what it is that God wants. Any of you that do any fishing, you understand what this is like, okay? You don't just take a great big hook and throw it into the water and expect a fish to bite. I mean, if that's the way you're fishing, that might explain a lot as to why you're not having any success. You understand that you start off, you throw something in there and you bait that hook. You make sure that it looks nothing like a hook. You throw it in the water and you try to move it just right to where the fish are like, Whoa, hey, I think I want to eat that. And they start nibbling on it, nibbling on it, and finally they take it hook, line, and sinker, and you see the devil works the same way. And so what I'd like to do in this idea of falling from God's plan is I want to take these sins that that David has committed. And the first thing that we've learned in this passage is that sin always takes you further than you want to go. Sin always takes you further than you want to go. Say, preacher, what was the first sin that David committed? Was it adultery, then murder? No, it wasn't that abrupt. It wasn't that blunt. Say, well, then what was the first sin that David committed? Well, I'll tell you. The first sin that David committed was assuming that he had the right to take a break. That was the first sin he committed. The first sin he committed was actually the sin of selfishness. Now, we read verse number one, and you may not see that there, but I want you to notice in verse number one, uh, about the second phrase, it says, at the time when kings go forth to battle. What is David? He's a king. What should David be doing? Going out to battle. It is the time in which kings go out to battle. But what does David do? He sends someone in his place, a guy by the name of Joab, and the Bible tells us at the end of verse 1 that David tarried still at Jerusalem. The first sin that David committed here was a sin of selfishness. He said, no, I'm not going to go out with my people. I'm not going to go and perform my duty. I am not going to do what God has called me to do. I need a break. I deserve some time for rest. And so David, in this moment, the first sin he commits is the sin of assuming that he had the right to take a break and to find rest. And ultimately, it was a moment of selfishness in David's life. This is where this all began. Let me ask you a question. If King David had been out on the battlefield with his men fighting for God's cause, would he have committed the sin with Bathsheba this day? He would not have. So this is where it all begins. Then we go on to sin number two. The second sin that David commits is that David then went to a place. Now listen to this. David went to a place at a time where he knew his lustful pleasures could be satisfied. Now I understand this isn't easy for any of us this morning, but I'm just telling you this is what God's asked me to preach. And I don't understand all the details. I just... I'm just left to trust that God has a great reason for all this. But whenever I look at this passage, I understand in verse number 2, and I hope you understand, that David knows where he's going. David knows what time of day it is. David knows what side of the rooftop to go to. You understand where I'm coming from. And just as David expected, it says, And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. Say, Preacher, what are you trying to say? I'm trying to say that when David went up on the roof, he didn't go... He was not shocked by what he saw. He knew exactly where he was going. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what his intentions were. And he went to the place where he knew his lustful pleasures could be satisfied. That was his second sin. We move into something even deeper and darker at this point. Sin number three. David then ignores the attempts made to stop him from committing this vile sin. Notice it here in verse number number three, it says, and David sent and inquired after the woman. Now listen to this, I don't know who this was. I don't know which servant said these words, but I've got so much respect for them. You understand that verse number three says, and one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? I don't know who that was, but I've got so much respect for him. They spoke up when nobody else would. They said something when nobody else would say anything. We're talking about a, a lowly, peasant-like servant speaking to the king. And he says, uh, uh, King, I, un- I understand what you're saying, but... She's married. I've got a lot of respect for that servant. You know, one of the hardest things in the world to do is confront somebody in this kind of a scenario. It's one of the hardest things in the world to do. But I see a servant that steps in the way and says, Hold on, hold on, you need to rethink this. This gal is not available, King David. She's not available. But of course we know the story in verse 4, King David goes ahead and sends a messenger anyway to take her. So the third sin that David commits is he ignores the attempts to stop him from committing this atrocity. And then we move into sin number 4, which is David committing adultery with a married woman in verse number 4. And David sent messengers and took her and she came in unto him and he lay with her for she was purified from her uncleanness and she returned unto her house. Now that little phrase, she was purified from her uncleanness, without getting into much detail, you understand that Jewish law had certain rules and regulations regarding these things. And it's almost like it's spoken there so that it indicates to us that David almost felt justified in what he was doing. Hey, this is going to work out just right. In his mind, he was at... Now listen to this. In his mind, and this is what, this is what sin does, it perverts the mind. In his mind, he had convinced himself that he was at the right place at the right time. That's what David was thinking here. And all the while, we know, he—no, no, 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 he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Sin always takes you further than you want to go. We also know that sin always keeps you longer than you want to stay. Sin always takes you or keeps you longer than you want to stay. And we see this happening here. Look at verses 5 through 13 with me. It says, And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. Oh, no. This this was not supposed to go this far. But you see, that's what sin does. It always keeps you longer than you want to stay. Look at verse number 6, And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did, and how the people did, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house, and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. Here was the hope. The hope was is that basically what David's getting at here is he's trying to manipulate and deceive to cover his own tracks. He calls Uriah off the battlefield. Who knows how many lives were lost as a result of that decision. We read that like, oh, that was no big deal. Oh, that was a big deal to the guy that was standing on the left of Uriah and the guy that was standing on the right of Uriah that were dependent on Uriah out on the battlefield. And David says, no, 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 I've sinned and I've got to cover my tracks so Uriah, I need you over here with me. And so he calls Uriah home, sends Uriah to his house, and he's hoping that Uriah will cover his tracks for him. Verse number nine goes on to say But Uriah, listen to this, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house. Oh no, with all the servants of his Lord and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down unto thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark ark, and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife, as thou livest and as thy soul liveth I? will not do this thing. Now, at this point, would we all agree that this would have been a perfect moment for David to be broken over his sin? As, as Uriah lays out before King David what he will not do in light of what the children of Israel are going through in this moment. And yet, instead of going down that road, look at what David does in verse number 12. And David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also. And tomorrow I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the, and the morrow. And when David had called him, now listen to this, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his lord, but went not down to his house. You see, sin always keeps us longer than we want to stay. David thought he had concocted the perfect plan. We'll bring. Uriah in, will go ahead and, and give him opportunity, to take leave, go see his family. But instead, David or Uriah being an upright man, he says, no, I'm going to sleep right here with the servants of my Lord. I'm not going to go home and enjoy the luxuries of being home whenever my brothers are out on the battlefield. I'm not going to do it. And so instead of David breaking down and getting right, instead of going down that road, instead, he goes ahead on the next day and starts to give this guy so much meat and so much wine to drink that he literally gets him drunk with the hopes that then he can coerce him to go and do what he had planned the day before. This was David's fifth sin. Attempting to manipulate and deceive to cover his tracks. Finally, we learn that that sin always, listen to this, sin always costs you more than you want to pay. It always costs you more than you want to pay. The sixth sin that we see David committing here is in an act of desperation, David conspires to have Uriah murdered at the hands of his enemies. Now listen to this, and he sends the letter commanding it so in the hand of Uriah himself. Let's read it. Look at verse number 14 with me. It says, and it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab. And there fell some of the people of the servants of David and Uriah the Hittite died also. David writes a letter to Joab. He says, Joab, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take Uriah. I want you to put him at the hottest battle that there is. I want you to put him on the front lines. Joab says, okay. What I find stunning is that he sends that message in Uriah's hand. Uriah is such a noble and upright man in this circumstance that David knows he's not going to open the letter to read it. So he literally sends it in Uriah's hand, and Uriah takes the letter off to Joab. Joab reads it, puts him in the front of the battle, and he dies at the front of the hottest battle. We know at this point David is thinking, finally, it's about time I got this behind me. But what does God think? You see, that's how we often, even in our day, operate. As long as we don't get caught, there is no guilt over sin. And I believe in the eyes and heart of God that is shameful. That the only time that Christians ever experience guilt is when they get caught. It shouldn't be that way. David at this point is thinking, man, I've finally gotten away with it. Everything's done. I know Bathsheba, she's having a terrible time with with, uh, with g- going through this and her husband's died and all that. She'll get over that. I'm just glad it's over for me. But what is God's opinion? Look at the end of verse number... Uh, look at verse 26 and verse 27 of Second Samuel chapter 11. It says, And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, as we've looked at this, what we've concluded is that sin always takes you further than you want to go. It always keeps you longer than you want to stay. And it always costs you longer than you want to pay. You've probably heard some preachers say those words before. And we see that played out right here in this passage of Scripture. That is how he fell from God's plan for his life. Now we ask ourselves the question, how then did he go from this position to Psalm 51? We know how he went from Psalm 23 to here, because it tells us right here in 2 Samuel chapter number 11. But how does he go from here to Psalm chapter 51? It's what I'm calling finding God's perspective. Finding God's perspective. Look at 2 Samuel chapter number 12 and verse 1. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. Now, before we go in too deep to the case that Nathan makes against David here, I want you to understand something happens before the case is ever made. God calls a, a man of God. His name is Nathan. And Nathan hears the call of God and accepts the call of God but I want you to remember who he's going to. Nathan is asked by God to take a message to the king of Israel. A king who is apparently desperately backslidden. By the way, I can assure you that David, at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 10, never dreamed that by the end of 2 Samuel chapter number 11, he would be a murderer and an adulterer. But you see, that's how sin works. That's how sin always works. We find out, by the way, in 2 Chronicles, that it really all began with pride. That's where it all began with David. He started thinking too highly of himself. Next thing you know, adultery is committed, murder is committed. But here in this passage, there is a man by the name of Nathan. God calls him out, says, hey, I've got a message for the king. God tells him what the message is. Now, I can assure you when Nathan heard that message, it was probably a bit unsettling. Because at this point, nobody knows about what David did except for a couple messengers that were in the room that he sent to get her. Bathsheba knows, David knows. A couple other messengers, that's about it. Joab probably assumes something strange is happening. But you got Nathan called of God, and he hearkens to that call. Praise God, he did. And when Nathan goes to David, he doesn't go to David and say, Hey, I know it's been a rough time. I understand what you did, David, but you you just got to know it was wrong. That is not the tone that Nathan takes with David here. Listen to what he says in verse number one, starting about halfway through. This is Nathan speaking. He says, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. Some of you know what he's talking about. I know we've got some dear animal lovers in this room today. And you know exactly what he's taking, what he's talking about. There is a goat that one of our church members has. Its name is Seth. I found out, hey, I'm excited about Seth the goat. That was the first animal here at this church ever named after me. That was a big deal for me. But I found out this week there's going to be another, there's going to be a dog that's going to be named after me. That's right. Amos Moses is what they say they're going to call him. I was excited about that. Now, there was a goat named Seth. I wish that they were here today to hear this part of the sermon because I knew they'd enjoy this. But Seth was not exactly the strongest goat when he was born. He's kind of a weakling of a goat. No, nothing more needs to be said, does it? And so Steve Keller decided he was going to take... Seth the goat, and instead of him being kept out in the pen with all the other goats, he was going to let Seth the goat live inside the house. He was going to let him prance around on the furniture. He's going to let him drink out of his own dishes and and, and eat out of his own dishes. And and he was going to nourish that goat. I can't remember what happened with Seth the goat. I think it turned out okay. Okay. The one thing I know is that that goat was dearly loved by its owner. And so whenever this description is given, there are some of you here in this room, you understand exactly what's being said. Verse 4, And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth. The man that hath done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. He didn't sugarcoat anything. He gives him the illustration, and at the end of it, David gets all outraged over what this man did. And Nathan turns to him and said, David, you're the man. This is precisely what you did. God had given you everything you could ever dream of and so much more. You could have never comprehended as a tiny shepherd boy out in the middle of that field so many years ago that there would come a day that you would sit as king over Israel. What more could God have given you? And you just had to go and take the one woman you couldn't have that didn't belong to you. David, you're the man. This is the case that's brought before David. David, outraged by it, begins to level out his own decision on how this should be handled. And then we see the courage that Nathan has to say, you're the man. I could, I could be wrong about Nathan. Nathan could have just been a very spirit-filled man, not had any nerves at all. I mean, he could have just been ready to roll. But I know if I were Nathan, my knees would have been shaken. When I got to this point. Because you understand, at the point where Nathan looks at David and says, You're the man, at that very moment, David could have had him beheaded. David could have taken his head off his shoulders right now. And Nathan goes ahead and says it anyway. And you know, it's days like today that I appreciate that so much. Days where I understand and I know before I ever step to the pulpit that God's asked me to preach something very difficult to preach. And it is such a blessing to know that God can help us through times like these, to say what needs to be said, even when it's uncomfortable. Finally, we see the cost. Look at verse number verse number five. I'm sorry, verse number six. It says, and he shall restore the lamb. This is David speaking, he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, and because now listen to this, and because he had no pity. And you see, that's there for a reason. The Holy Spirit intended for that to be there for a reason. That was, that was why David really, what he did was so atrocious was because he had no pity. He never even thought about Uriah. Never even thought about Bathsheba. Never even thought about the child that would be conceived and born. Never thought about the cause of God in Israel, which we're getting ready to read about. He had no pity, it says at the end of verse six, verse seven. And Nathan said to David, thou art the man. Thus, now listen, he doesn't stop there. He says, thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandments of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken taken his wife to be thy wife and has slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon now remember nobody told nathan this god told nathan this nathan is repeating things that nathan should not know why because god had delivered it to nathan Verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son." Can I say that God has always made His perspective of sin clear in His Word? I'm having a hard time figuring out where to close out this sermon because it's time to close and I'm not even halfway done yet. But I think I know what I'm going to close on today. A lot of times what we end up doing, preachers, Is we'll preach a sermon like this and we won't close until we let everybody know they can be forgiven. I shared with our Sunday school class this morning an important truth that I believe needs to be considered this morning. There are a lot of times that we are living in sin right here. And can I just say that God hates sin just as much today as He did whenever David committed it? I mean, has God changed since this time period? He's not. He's the same God always. God, the God that we serve is infinite. He's infinite. He's immutable. He is constant, and he's always the same. And so, if in fact God is the same God today as he always has been, his perspective of sin has not changed. Now, what he does about sin has has radically changed in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. He's made a way for sin to be cleansed. That is a fact. That is true. We will close with that today. But here's the mistake that we preachers make oftentimes. We go straight from sin to forgiveness. And by going straight from sin to forgiveness and sidestepping God's displeasure over sin. What we do as preachers is we convince people that God is so ready to forgive that they can just hop straight from the sin into forgiveness. And to a certain degree, that may be true. But you understand that repentance is an important part of that forgiveness. It's why in 1 John chapter 1, he says that we have to confess our sins. And if we confess our sins, he is then faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Say, preacher, what is in between then from sin to forgiveness? It's the displeasure of God and wrath of God over sin. And whenever we jump straight from our sin into forgiveness and we don't take time to dwell in the displeasure that God has over our sin, then as a forgiven individual, we will look back to the sin and we'll think, man, it was so easy to go from sin to forgiveness that I might think that it's easy to go back from forgiveness back into sin. And so that's what we do. We jump over back into our sin because we're thinking, man, that was so easy to get forgiven. So we jump back into sin for a little while. We live over here and then we start feeling bad about it or whatever. And then we jump back over here into forgiveness. We think, okay, all right, I feel better now. But then we get dissatisfied over here living the life that we're supposed to live. We look back (coughs) over to sin we think, hey, I remember how fun that was. And so we jump back over here into sin. And back and forth, back and forth, back and forth we go. And we never experience victory. You say, preacher, what is missing? The fear of God is missing. That's what's missing. And I believe today there are some who just need to abide in the fear of God for a little while. Who need to feel the weight of God's displeasure over the sin. To understand that God is not okay with this. Say, preacher, I did not come here to hear that. I understand. But you understand that this is what God has called me to do. And and there may be other places you can go and you can sit and you can hear a sermon that doesn't address these things. But I'm telling you, this is the things that that are holding back, I believe, holding back revival from breaking loose in churches. I believe these are the kinds of things that are holding back Christians from being vibrant and thriving for the cause of Christ. I believe these are the things that are holding people back from accomplishing their God-given purpose And because we have no preachers across our land who will call it what it is. And that is sin before a thrice holy God. We have people just feeling like they can just keep living in it. That is not what God wants. He wants to forgive you of it. He wants to cleanse you from it. He wants to give you victory over it. He wants to pull you out of it. And can I say... He doesn't want you going back into it. That's something only God can do. It's at this point that I believe Psalm 51 is penned. David says in verses 13 through 15 of that chapter we were just reading, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. He does not try to cover his tracks. He does not try to to sugarcoat what he's done. He states plainly, I have sinned against the Lord. We need more people that are willing to do that. More people. Now, listen, David could have said a lot of things in verse 13. He could have said... I told Joab I was willing to go to the battle, and he said he could handle it. Could have blamed Joab. He could have said, I was just trying to go up and and enjoy some fresh air, and she was being immodest. Could have blamed Bathsheba. He could have said, hey, I talked to Bathsheba, and she acted like Uriah was not meeting her needs. He could have blamed Uriah. But he didn't. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. Say, preacher, what's the first step? What's the first step in getting out of these dark, dark places? You see, we've all, in certain ways, in certain shapes and forms, we've all been there. Held down by besetting sin. Overcome by wickedness that no one should ever know about. Say, preacher, what's the first step out of it? I have sinned against the Lord. It's taking personal responsibility for your own immorality before God. And in fear, in worship, in dread, in awe, falling into the presence of God, admitting your fault before Him, and asking Him for His cleansing. For the child of God that does not know, or that knows Christ as their Savior, there are some here today that need to come to this altar. You say, preacher, if I come to the altar at this point, everybody's gonna, nobody's gonna know. You say, preacher, if I come forward, people are gonna think. What are they gonna think? My hope and my prayer is that there isn't anybody in here thinking about somebody else next to him. I'm hoping that everybody is looking internally right now this morning. There are some children of God who need to come to this altar, just like David here and Psalm 51 does, and we'll look at it next week, need to come to this altar and bow before God's presence and say, God, I have sinned. There may be some that want to stand and admit before the body this morning. You don't have to. But there may be some that that need to say, hey, as a member of Trinity Baptist Church, I have sinned. And we don't have to go into all the gory details, but I'm telling you, these are the things that God wants to do to bring about lasting change in an individual's life, in a family's life, in the life of the church. And it all begins with taking personal responsibility over our sin and saying, I have sinned against the Lord. We'll look next week at some other thoughts as to what takes place afterwards, but I believe that's where we're to end today. There are some that need to just come and say, I have sinned against the Lord. And I'm sorry. And we'll pick up from there next week and we'll see what happens in David's life. And the good news is, when we get to the end, we actually don't end at Psalm 23. and We don't end at Psalm chapter 51. You know where we end up at? We actually end in Psalm chapter 32. Where David says, Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven whose iniquity is covered. You see, there will be a deeper love than you've ever known for your Savior when you taste of the sweet forgiveness that He offers in spite of the sin you've committed. There are some here today that don't know Christ as their Savior, that have never truly trusted Him. And I'm telling you today, He has the power to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's the very reason why He came and shed His own blood on the cross of Calvary. He came to deliver you once and for all from your sin. And all He asks of you is that you might rest unreservedly in what He's done on your behalf. He died for you. He was buried and then He rose up from the grave. It's why you can sense His presence in this room today is because He's alive. And the question is, are you going to believe on Him or not?